We continue on this week in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, and we'll actually be in part of the passage we were in last week. It's John chapter 4, Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the whale. And incidentally, we'll also be in this passage next week. Uh, it'll be three weeks here. Um, and the reason is because I think this is one of the most significant uh, passages in the Gospels. It's the longest conversation that Jesus has with anybody in all the Gospels. is with this unnamed, anonymous, Samaritan woman at a random well in a small town. And uh, the, the reason why I think it's so significant is obviously Jesus thought it was significant. Nobody else was there for this conversation. The reason his disciples know about it, the reason why John could write it, because Jesus told them about this conversation. He obviously thought it was central to who he was. So, with that said, uh, this week we'll be looking uh, just at verses 19 through 24 from John chapter 4. And a reminder of, of what came before this. Jesus has arrived at this well in this small town. He's traveling through this Samaritan village. And he stops because he's thirsty. It's a good reason to stop. Um, and he encounters a woman there in the middle of the day who has had shame heaped on her from every angle. She's been shamed because she's Samaritan and treated like she's less than. She's been shamed because she's a woman, not because uh, women are less <laughs> than men in any way whatsoever. But that's what's happened to her, especially in the ancient world. And she's been shamed because she's been married and divorced five times. She has been left and used and rejected. She finds in Jesus this promise of a source of strength and identity, a nourishment, a living water that will nourish her, that she can come back to, that will never run dry, a source of identity and strength. And then their conversation turns to worship. Where can I find God? And that's our passage this morning. So uh, it's printed for you in your bulletin. If you want to look it up, you can as well. It's John chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. This is God's word. Good, beautiful, and true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is a Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it we get a glimpse of who you are, what you're about. And so we also get a picture of who we are in you and the promises that belong to us because of Christ. So I pray in these moments, Lord, as we look at, these passage, at this passage, at these verses, that you would open the eyes of our heart to see the love that will not let us go in Christ, to see the strength that is ours in Christ, the power that raised Jesus from the dead that is, an, that is able to uh, lead us into our world of death with life, in our world of darkness with light. So I pray, reveal Jesus to us that we might love him all the more and be changed to be more and more like him. I pray this all in his name. Amen. So I'm going to start with a bit of an embarrassing personal story. I love concerts. I've been to a lot of them. And back in 2004, probably my favorite band was a band called Switchfoot. 
I got really, really into this band. I had every album. They're now, uh, this time their fourth album had just came out. The first three albums were kind of indie albums. They hadn't sold a lot, but I was really into them. And the fourth album just took off. It was getting radio play, and all of a sudden, all these people are showing up at shows. It goes from like a couple hundred people at shows to a thousand people at shows. Um, but like I said, I knew this band. I knew every, every song. I knew the track listing on the album. I knew every lyric, all of it. This was, I knew where they were from, all this stuff. And so Angela, my wife, and I are going to um, see them live. And this was, I think, the second time I'd seen them. We're going to this place, and like I said, they were starting to get big, and so the crowd's a lot bigger than it had been before. It's just exciting. And we pull into the parking lot, and we're going to find a parking spot, and suddenly five guys shoot in front of our car, and they've got hoodies on, and they've got their hoods up, and they're trying to sneak away. And of course, I'm the uber fan of this band, and I recognize every member. They're, they're crossing the parking lot to go to Ragazzi's to eat some Italian food because they're hungry and tired. Um, and so I stop, and I see them, and before I can really think about what I'm doing, I lay on the car bed. I'm driving, and I wave. Like I just seen a lost, long lost friend. I wave. And Angela, who's sitting beside me, she says, Tim, what are you doing? And I say, Let me wave. Which is something we still say, uh, you know, 16 years later, 17 years later, anytime uh, one of us gets really excited about something, let me wave. Um, but something became very obvious as soon as I waved and laid on the horn. It was that this band that I knew everything about, at least in my own mind, didn't know me at all. And suddenly, you know, half the band is looking at me kind of angry because I'm about to blow their cover. They're trying to go eat. The rest of the band is looking at me kind of scared because they think I almost hit them with the car and I'm honking at them to get out of the way. And then the keyboard player waves back. <laughs> He's a good guy, Jerome. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but something became very obvious that even though I knew a lot, at least I thought I knew a lot about this band, we didn't have that true connection of we didn't have that true connection of intimacy that exists between friends. Now, on the one hand, I knew a lot about them. Like I said, I knew every word to every song. I knew where they were from, where they grew up, when they started, all the you know, details that you know about somebody famous that you admire. Um, so I had a lot of true knowledge about them, right? Um, but I, I didn't know them as people. And they didn't know me at all. Now, on the other hand, where I had gaps in my knowledge, maybe, if I'm honest, I filled it in with my own information. Like, I, I guessed, you know, if we ever met, we'd be, we'd be buds. I bet they like the same movies as me. I bet they like the same food. I bet they're going to ask me to go to Ragazzi's with them after the, that didn't really happen. Um, but, you know, I had true knowledge on the one hand that wasn't enough to bridge that gap, that wasn't enough for the intimacy of friendship. And on the other hand, I had filled in gaps in my knowledge with my own projections, with my own kind of made-up stuff. And so I had an idea of who they were in my mind that didn't match up with the actuality of who they were. Now, the reason I tell this is probably getting obvious. I think we do that with God a lot. I think it's possible for us to do that with God. And when I say us, I don't mean us just in this building. I mean human beings in general. Because on the one hand, we can know a lot about God. We can know a lot about God. We can look at what he's created. You ever seen a beautiful sunset or been on top of a mountain and thought, the God who made this must love beauty. 
He must have some wisdom to tie all of this together. Even just looking at a tree, the intricacies of, of the creation of it, or a human being. So we can, you know, we can know some stuff from that, what uh, theologians used to call the book of nature. We can know a lot about him from Scripture. He reveals himself in Scripture and what he's about, what he's doing. And we can read that, and we can learn a whole lot about him in the 66 books of Scripture. But it's possible for us to know a lot about God and about stuff surrounding him and miss his heart entirely. That's very easy to do, to know a lot about God. But to miss him, kind of like I knew a lot about the band, but not then. Now, on the other hand, we like to fill in our, we don't like gaps in our knowledge, especially when you know, something as important as God. And so we can fill in the gaps with our own projections. And suddenly, God just becomes like us, but more. Like us, but bigger. So God, you know, dislikes the people we dislike. <laughs> And God becomes just a rubber stamp for what we want to do anyway. And I don't mean just individually. Just about every kingdom or nation that's ever went to war has said, we got God on our side. We are the righteous cause. So we can have true knowledge in Mrs. Hart, and we can also fill in the gaps of our knowledge with guesswork. And that guesswork is really just idolatry, creating God in our own image. Now, in this passage that we just read, I actually think we see this same dynamic at work. Jesus is addressing this same kind of thing and speaks to it directly. And what I think we find in our passage is Jesus, the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Jesus, the fulfillment of all the longings of women and men. Jesus, the answer to the frustrations of life. Telling this woman, and through it being recorded for us in Scripture, telling us as well that finding a God... Finding God is not about finding the right mountain to climb, to get close enough. But in Jesus, we find a God who seeks us out, who comes to where we are and invites us not just to know about him or do some educated guesswork, but to know him. To know him and the delight of finding him as our source of joy and strength and worthiness in this life. And so to kind of get our minds around this passage, I've broken it up into a couple of sections. And the first one's this, ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no mountain high enough. Now last week we focused on the woman in this encounter, this Samaritan woman and the experience of shame that she had had in her world. Shame that had been heaped on her. And we talked about how Jesus opens up a way for her to be free from her shame. And ultimately he does that on the cross. He defeats the power of shame. So that she can found her identity on something that can bear it, on him. And the core of their interaction there in the first part of their conversation is about, he talks about living water and eternal life. But this week I want to focus in on where the conversation turns next, to worship. Because she's, he's talking about shame. She's talking about shame. And then the conversation turns. It can almost feel like a, a, a different conversation into a question about, where do I worship? Now, this question isn't, you know, should I go to First Baptist? Should I go to Christ Church Dunn? Should I go to wherever? The question here is, where can I find God? Because Jesus has been telling her, who lives a life steeped in shame like tea, that she can be free of that shame. She can have living water that never runs out. And she's asking, where do I get that? Because I haven't gotten here at this well that we're at. Where can I get that? 
Can I get it at, at the mountain my ancestors taught me about? That's called Mount Gerizim. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Can I find it in Jerusalem at Mount Zion? She's asking, where can I find God? I keep drinking from fountains that don't satisfy and only poison my heart. Where can I find this living water? And she brings up in verse 20 two answers to this question that she's heard in her life. Notice she says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. That's Mount Gerizim. But you Jews claim that the place where we need to worship is Jerusalem. That's Mount Zion. And I think she asked Jesus this question with a sense of frustration. And the reason I think she asked this with a sense of frustration is because she certainly hasn't found God in her experience. Her experience of shame in her world, she has not found God. As we said last week, she's a Samaritan. And as she says in verse 20, the tradition in her her uh, culture as a Samaritan is we worship where our ancestors worship on Mount Gerizim, a place where her uh, ancestors had worshipped for hundreds of years. And yet, what has she found from the community of people that worship at Mount Gerizim? Nothing but shame and rejection. Not welcome. Shame and rejection. And she's saying, I've been to Mount Gerizim and I didn't find God there. And she's talking to Jesus, who she's clearly identified and clearly knows that he's a Jewish man. And so she brings up Jerusalem, or what's also called Mount Zion in Old Testament literature. It's kind of a poetic name. She says, you Jews say we need to worship in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was, the temple of God, originally built by Solomon. And she had probably never been there, but she lived in a town that, that existed on this trade route or this uh, travel route. Any Jewish person who lived uh, in Galilee, where Jesus was from, which was like the, the north part of the country, to get to Jerusalem, which they did three times a year at least, they needed to travel through these Samaritan villages. So she's saying, yeah, I uh, haven't found God at Mount Gerizim, but I also haven't found God from the people who travel to Jerusalem either. All I've found there is shame and rejection. So the false religion, in a sense, of Mount Gerizim has left her empty. The true religion warped the people that she's encountered that are traveling to Jerusalem has left her empty. She's saying, where can I find God? And when Jesus begins to respond in verse 21, he lays out uh, the ways that these two mountains have fallen short. He mentions, uh, or he talks about Mount Gerizim in verse 22. He says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. What he's saying here is, and it's too long to get into the whole history of Samaritans, but he's essentially saying that what they did was embody that impulse of trying to fill in the gaps of their knowledge by making stuff up, in a sense. Now, Mount Gerizim historically was a very important site. It was this important historical location. It's the equivalent of us going to Washington, D.C. and saying, well, because this is important historically, this must be holy ground. That's what Mount Gerizim was. It was a place where important things had happened in their history. And so they said, well, this must be a holy site. This must be where we can find God. But this isn't something that only the Samaritans do. It's something that I think we all do. We start guessing what God will be like. We mentioned that earlier. The problem with it is we start creating God in our own image. We project out and we find a God that dislikes all the people we dislike. 
We find a God that only cares for and blesses our own country, our own people. We find a God who wants to just give us our dreams and keep us from feeling sad. But really, this is idolatry. This is us projecting out. This is us creating a box and putting our idea of God in the box. Not actually dealing with the reality of who God is. In essence, the Samaritans had developed a picture of God that was of their own devising. And a God that we make is a God we can control. It's a God who will never challenge us to disturb us out of complacency. And that's no God at all. That's not the true and living God. So that was the mountain that she's talking about in verse 20. But that brings us to another mountain that Jesus mentions. And that's Jerusalem or Mount Zion. And that brings us to our second section. Jesus, the true and better temple. Jesus, the true and better temple. So Jesus continues on. Look at verse 22 again. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Now Jesus is telling her that up until this point, the question between Mount Gerizim and Mount Zion or Jerusalem is one that had a right answer. If you had the choice between A, Mount Gerizim, and B, Jerusalem, you'd choose B. You'd go to Jerusalem. <laughs> uh, in, in Old Testament terms, they spoke of it. God had placed his name there. He had commanded the temple to be built there. And the temple was kind of like this beautiful symbol right there in the middle of the city, declaring God's intention to dwell with his people. They had houses. He's going to build a house. I'm going to live in your midst. But the temple, this place where in all the world at this time, if you had a question, where can I go to find God? The answer is the temple. Go to the temple. But Jesus is saying here that something's changed. In Jesus, the next stage of God fulfilling his promise to be the God of his people and his people to be with him, to dwell with them. The next stage of the fulfillment of that promise has come in Jesus. And Jesus is saying in these verses that as wonderful as the temple was, as beautiful as it was, with all the rich symbolism that it, it, it embodied, it was always a temporary thing. It was always a temporary thing pointing to what God was preparing to do. It was like scaffolding going up on the actual true building. That the temple was a temporary house meant to teach that God was going to dwell with his people. And what he's saying here is, and this is a lesson, that, to, miss, to miss this, that the temple was temporary, is to kind of commit the error of um, having knowledge about God and missing his heart. Because the temple had, been to, had begun to be treated kind of like the, the point. The temple's the point. This is where it was all leading. And God gave us the temple and this is, this is it. This is great. But detached, that was detached from God's overarching plan. That was detached from the heart of who he was. And here's the thing. It had been, treat, it had been built by God's own instruction. But as I said, it had been treated like a presumptive possession like a badge, like a guarantee slip that God was on our side. And that is how it has been treated. You can even see that in the Old Testament. If you want to have a depressing read, go read First and Second Kings. <laughs> uh, read uh, the prophet Jeremiah, where the, play, the, the, the land had become an incredible place of oppression and sin, but in the face of it, they say, we have the temple. <laughs> 
Nothing's going to happen to us. We have the temple. It had become the status, a closed-off status of national identity. It had become kind of like a married person treating their wedding ring like it was the point of the marriage. Instead of the living person who's their spouse. The ring's not the point. No matter how beautiful it might be, no matter how much it costs, no matter how much you like looking at it, how heavy it feels on your hand, the ring's never the point. The ring's always a symbol. It's always a sign pointing to something else. But as I said, the temple had become hoarded off. It's one of the reasons Jesus gets so angry in John chapter 2 that he drives the money changers from the temple. Because the temple, had, which had been built as a house of prayer for all people that God talks about through the prophet Isaiah. House of prayer for all people. It had not become a place of welcome, but it had become another box to put God in. And this is one of the reasons I think that Jesus had become such a threat to the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. Because he had arrived to tell them that I am the point. I am the person to which this symbol is pointed all along. Emmanuel, God with us. God coming to dwell with us in his grace. God in the flesh. I am here. But this disrupted too much. It caused too much of an issue. Because now, if the leaders couldn't tell the people that they had to come to Jerusalem to find God. you got to come to us. You know, that shuts off <laughs> a, a nice stream of income. If they can't tell them, you need to pay the temple tax to come and worship. If they can't say anymore that you've got to go through us to get to God, then the entire world would turn upside down. So many of the Jewish people, so many of the religious people, had treated their true knowledge of God like a badge of honor to prop them up. And they had missed the heart of God. And that's true today, right? I don't need to start listing the examples of pastor after pastor who has mistreated the people under his care, who has used scripture, who has used true things about God to build his own kingdom, and has missed the heart of God, and has stomped on people in the process to make money or to build a platform or whatever it might be. This is not something that was just limited to this time. And we miss the heart of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. In verses 21 and 23, Jesus speaks of a time that is now coming, or a time that is coming and has now arrived. And the time has come in Jesus when the limitation in space to Jerusalem and the temple as a place where we can find God is about to explode. Explode out from just being limited to one physical space in the Middle East to spread worldwide. Where the answer of where can I find God is not Mount Gerizim or even the true answer at the time of Jerusalem. But the answer of where I can find God is right here with me through Christ. As I said, the temple was always temporary. It was designed to be. And that's clear actually through the Old Testament. This isn't Jesus saying anything new. If you even look back to uh, 2 Chronicles 6... The day the temple was dedicated, Solomon prays, and these are the words in the middle of his prayer. But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The answer is yes in Christ. 
But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built? The very day it was dedicated, it was recognized. That this wasn't a house we were building for God just to live here. This was a temporary thing, meant to teach. God dwells with his people the way they dwell. In the first generation of Israelites, the giving of the tabernacle, it was a tent. Why did God live in a tent at the time? Because his people lived in tents. In the temple, it was built because the people had become, uh, they had become uh, established in the land under King David in peace. And now they lived in buildings. So what's going to happen in the building? God's going to build a building. He's going to live with his people as they are. And that's fulfilled. All of that is pointing forward to Jesus when God dwells with us as one of us. Not just in a beautiful building, but as a human being. Now, the temple was a phase of growth in God's plan. Think of it this way. Acorn to oak tree. Acorn, little baby acorn, becomes what? Mighty oak tree. Doesn't happen overnight. Think of the very first promise to Abraham. Genesis 15. When God called, or Genesis 12, 15, and 17. When God calls to Abraham, and he says, through you, through your family, I'm going to bless every family on earth. That's the acorn. That's the beginning of that promise. And all the successive promises that God makes throughout the Old Testament, the, 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 the birth of the nation in a sense at, uh, Mount, at uh, Mount Sinai under Moses, the promises to David to establish a king over God's people, all these are stages of growth. But in Jesus, that, that acorn has grown into a mighty oak tree. No longer small, but in Jesus it explodes out. An oak tree that's able to provide shade. <laughs> An oak tree we can run to. Acorn to oak tree. Or think of it this way in regards to the temple. The temple was kind of like training wheels on a bicycle. Training wheels on a bike. Training wheels are meant to be temporary. If we see you know, a 25-year-old guy riding his bike down the road with training wheels, we wonder what happened. Because you put the training wheels on early, but the idea is with the training wheels, you learn how to balance. You learn how to pedal. You get the idea. You get the motions of what it means to ride a bike. The plan all along is to take those training wheels off once that muscle memory is developed, once you know what's going on. Jesus is saying that in him, the training wheels are being removed because what has been planned, what has been pointed to all along has arrived. God is a spirit. He's not limited in time or space. He obviously can't be contained in a building, not even one as grand as the temple. The temple was God saying, you can find me among you. I dwell where you dwell. It was always meant to prepare the way of Jesus, the true and better temple. Jesus, the true and better temple, the place where we know we can find God, the person in whom we can find God. In Jesus... God is present with us, not just in a building of stone, but as one of us. God becomes man, descending to us that we might ascend to him. What was talking about in Hebrews 2, in our assurance of pardon. He identifies with us so that we might be identified with him. The book of Matthew calls him Emmanuel, God with and even the combined powers of sin, death, and Satan cannot stop his intention to bring us to himself, for him to dwell with us. 
All those powers that stood in the way, that stood against us, were defeated at his cross and in the victory of his resurrection. He opens a fountain of living water to us, to use his imagery from John 4. One that spills out so that we can find God, we can worship him in all the places of our lives, day in, day out, no matter how ordinary they may seem. And so I'm a pastor. You don't have to go through me to find God. God seeks you out. And that brings me to my final section here, the God who seeks. The God who seeks. The woman is naturally asked in a number of different ways, where can I find God? Where can I find him? In verse 23, Jesus says something profound. Look at it again. He says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Jesus tells this woman who is asking, Where can I go to find God? Where can I go to seek Him? Jesus says, God is the one who seeks. When we talk about God, we are not talking about a stationary deity that sits off in the highest heaven and tells people to climb their highest to get to him. We find a God who seeks, not a God who asks you to climb to him, not a God who gives you a lot to know and treats life like it's some kind of test where there's a final coming where you've got to answer not a God who leaves us alone and we have to guess who he is. A God who seeks. And what does he seek? Worshippers who worship in spirit and in truth. Now I've always heard spirit and in truth and nobody ever explained it to me. <laughs> we just keep saying it and I'm like, okay. We come to God to find not just facts about him but communion with him. To worship in the spirit means to be to worship, to come to him empowered by Him, not motivated by something within ourselves, not generating within ourselves the, the want to go find Him, empowered by Him, by His Spirit, by His empowering presence, Him enlivening us, Him propelling us toward Him in His grace. God is a Spirit and we worship Him. In spirit. And this isn't to say that we worship him by having some big emotional demonstrative experience. That's one of the ways that it had been explained to me before. To worship God in spirit means to cry a lot or to be really loud or to do this or do that. Wave your hands a lot. And maybe that happens sometimes. That's okay. Crying's fine. I hope crying's fine. I cry all the time. Um, I cry at commercials. <laughs> No, but having a, you know, a big emotional experience is fine. We're emotional creatures. That's not something we shut ourselves off from. But we shouldn't think that to worship in the Spirit, propelled by the love of God for us and His, His life uh, pow empowering us, means that it always looks like big joy. Happy, happy, joy, joy, dancing. It doesn't always look like that. Sometimes it looks like sorrow. Sometimes it looks like our confession of sin when we quiet our hearts before the Lord. We're not dancing then, but we're in the presence of our King, and He's giving us His grace. That's what it means to worship according to the Spirit, is to find ourselves as those who God has set His affections on, 
Not to come to him cowering that will be turned away, but to come to him in the vibrancy of knowing that we are always received, that we are always heard, that the door is never closed to us. He is our father and he never closes his office door. (laughs) There's no man cave that God retreats into that we can't bother him. He always hears us. God's spirit is his empowering presence. And that becomes for us our family trait. The family trait of all who come to to Jesus. We always have access to God who is never absent from us. We don't have to travel somewhere to find him. He has sought us out right here and he dwells with us right here. And so when we need God, we don't have to find some beautiful cathedral. The doors might be locked. When we need God, we don't have to go anywhere. We can go even in the privacy of, sound weird, a restroom, our bedroom. He is with us. Just as powerfully, just as powerfully in our homes today as he was at the temple in Jerusalem all those years ago. He seeks us out. He dwells with us. And that's why scripture calls the church. If you look in the New Testament, it calls the church, all of us together with each other, the temple of God. Because the spirit dwells in us. It also calls us individually the temple of God. The empowered presence of God is ours. And the God of all creation who cannot be contained by the highest heavens, the God who transcends all things, dwells with the humble. Dwells. What great love. So to worship God in spirit is to meet God in the midst of this reality. That he is our God and we are his people. To be uh, awakened by his love for us. Not, Not trying to get him to notice us. But to know that he seeks us out. And to worship in truth. To worship in truth is not just knowledge. To worship in truth, according to the truth, as Jesus is talking about here, is to come to God, not missing his heart in the midst of knowledge, knowledge, but seeing what he is up to. To come to God, uh, not with our projections of who he might be, or our misunderstandings, but to come to him as he has revealed himself in Jesus. To come to him in truth... Is to come to God as he has shown himself. To see that our God is a God whose love extends to us. That he would pursue us. Light into darkness. Life into death. Forgiveness, transformation, and hope into our world. Torn apart by sin. To come to him in truth is to see the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. As it speaks about in 2 Corinthians 4. In closing. I want to point something out here in the text that I think I mentioned before. I actually don't remember if I did last week. But I want to make sure you see it because I think it's an important thing. Notice where this conversation is taking place. John chapter 4. Now if you remember a few weeks ago, Jesus had another conversation with another person in John chapter 3. He had spoken to a man named Nicodemus. Now we are meant to read the conversation with this woman at the well in the middle of the bright day. Beside the conversation with Nicodemus, the very important man who came to Jesus in the middle of the night. They're almost a study in contrast. 
They're two individual conversations that Jesus has that go completely differently. We're meant to read them side by side. In John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the darkness of night. He doesn't want anybody to see him. And he's an important man. In fact, he's one of the overseers of the temple in Jerusalem. He's a leader. He has all the pride of status. He has all the importance of a man who's done much. He's respected in the eyes of others, and um, he's done a lot with his life. And you remember in that conversation, Jesus tells him, you must be born again. Jesus is telling him, all those things that you wear, your respectability, all your accomplishments, all those things don't qualify you as more worthy of the grace of God than anyone else. And to come to me and receive the grace of God, you have to let go of those things. You have to be born again and come like a baby, carried with nothing in your hand at all. And what happens in that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus? In the face of God in the flesh speaking to him of this good news of a love that does not depend on his achievements and can't, by the way, be taken away by his failures... Nicodemus is reduced to silence. Notice in John 3, that conversation putters out. Nicodemus disappears. Staring the God he claimed to know so much about in the face, it seems he has nothing to say but objections and then nothing to say at all. That conversation putters out and it just ends. But in John 4, in our passage today, we find Jesus seeking this woman out. He goes to where she is. He comes to a seemingly random well in the middle of the day for water. It wasn't random, guys. To everyone else, she is important, unimportant, and overlooked, but not to Jesus. God seeks her out there in the midst of her shame. She's shamed by everyone she knows. She's shamed by everyone she knows. And with the offer of living water from Jesus, a living water that can nourish her soul in ways that nothing else in her life has ever, she is not reduced to silence. What happens? She doesn't turn away like Nicodemus. She doesn't have stuff she's holding on to to build her identity on. These badges of honor and respectability that Nicodemus couldn't let go of. She has had shame heaped on her shoulders. She has her past that she's carrying with her, the stuff that has happened to her. And she stares the baffling grace of Jesus in the face, and she what continues to question. She continues to speak. And rather than being reduced to silence like Nicodemus, she becomes the longest conversation partner of Jesus in all of Scripture. My point is this. In a world where we can seek to know God by knowing a lot about him but miss his heart. In a world where we can seek to fill in gaps in our knowledge by uh, creating God in our own image. Where we really wind up just worshiping ourselves. Let's face this morning our own encounter with Jesus. That's what's happening right now. We're encountering Christ. Not through me. Through the words of scripture though. He's present with us by the Spirit. And we're going to come to the table in a moment. And we're going to encounter Jesus. And may we not be like Nicodemus. Let's not close our hearts off in our self-importance and walk away from this grace. But let's be like the Samaritan woman here, who is a mother, a grandmother of ours in the faith. 
Let's be like her, who finds the freedom of knowing the God who seeks her, who comes to her. A God who's worth worshiping. Where can we find God? In the love of Jesus 